0: Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. I'm Alex Voss here from thechrisvosshow.com. Thechrisvosshow.com. Welcome to the big show, the big thing in the sky. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We certainly appreciate you guys coming by today and spending time with us as always. 14 years were going on in August. It's approaching the big thing, 1400 episodes of the Chris Voss show. And we're now pumping out two to three podcasts a day. And if that's not enough for you people, what more the hell do I have to do to get you to ask your friends, neighbors, relatives and people to subscribe to the Chris Voss show? Like seriously do it, do it. I sit at home and I read your guys's uh, comments and different uh, references you provide on iTunes to the show. And I really appreciate it because you guys get me um and uh all that good stuff if it wasn't for you well i'd just be sitting here talking in a mic one night but i do it because i love it when we have the most brilliant people on the show uh today we have an amazing author on the show multi-book author i should say and we'll be talking to her in the meantime for the show to your friends at goodreads.com for youtube.com for they're over on, we're on around that tick tock now with those kids trying to be cool and uh also check out linkedin our big uh, linkedin group linkedin newsletter she is with us today the author of the latest book that's coming out june 6th 2023 making a home life lessons from a season of Little League. Teresa Strasser joins us on the show today. She'll be talking to us about uh, her latest work and uh, talking to us about all the good stuff that went into it. And we're going to learn so much about her. Teresa Strasser is an Emmy-winning writer, uh, an Emmy-nominated television host. Uh, She was on uh, Win Ben Stein's Money. I remember that show. That was a great show. Uh, TLC's While You Were Out Radio and podcast audiences. Noah is the co-host on the Adam Carolla show. Adam Carolla always funny. I bumped into him one time outside of a restaurant. I should have gotten a picture with him. His first—he was with a woman. and I was like, I don't want to bother dudes. He's, you know, he's—I uh, think he was with his wife. Um, her first book, "Exploiting My Baby Because It's Exploiting Me," was published in January 2011 by Now and uh, to excellent reviews and became a Los Angeles Times bestseller. The book was optioned by Sony. Pictures Television, developed into a pilot for ABC, written by Teresa and Jamie Tarsus' Fanfare Productions. As a journalist, Strasser is a contributor to the Los Angeles Times and a columnist for the Los Angeles Jewish Journal. Her uh, first-person essays have garnered three Los Angeles Press Club Awards, including Columnist of the Year, and she blogs for HuffPost Comedy and HuffPost Parents. And what do you know? She's here in the flesh. Welcome to the show, Teresa. How are you?
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. A little nervous. We were talking before the show. This is my very first podcast to promote this book, Making It Home.
0: There you go. Well, we're honored to have you. It's excellent to have you. Give us a .coms, wherever you want people to find you on the interwebages in the sky.
1: You can find me at Teresa Strasser. That's my handle everywhere. T-E-R-E-S-A-S-T-R-A-S-S-E-R on Facebook, on Instagram, Instagram, and Twitter.
0: There you go, and we already got some love coming in. Always love her when she's on the Adam Carolla show.
1: So there Chris, you, go. you should have asked Adam to take a picture. He is so gracious; he will take a picture with a hundred fans. I'm telling you, he would never have turned you down.
0: I didn't know if he was married or not at the time, and uh, he was doing the Man Show, I think, at the time. And uh, you know, you, just, you don't want to cock block another guy. And, I understand. Uh, you know, sure. you're like, hey, man, he's out with the chick. You know, you don't want to be. I don't know, whatever, but he's done, he's done a great job at uh, laying a great foundation of billiard fog, brilliant podcast In fact, I don't think many of us would be here without him. Uh, I remember when he was on the radio and he, uh, I think he fired or quit or they just ran out of money or whatever the hell the deal was. It was a big transition of radio to yes, podcast. Yes. I was there. The
1: I was there. Yeah. yeah. I was his sidekick slash news girl. That's what we called it back in the day. Wow. For on FM radio, we replaced Howard Stern on the West Coast, and I think we were there four and a half years. And then, you know, stories old as time. The station flipped formats, and there was no longer talk. And that's when he we were podcasting out of you know his house with his dog Molly under our feet. And then it became what it is now.
0: Yeah, and he's done an awesome job with his network. So uh, let's talk about this book. How many books have you written? Because so we can get a plug in for them.
1: Chris, I write a book once every ten years. It's that hard. It's like childbirth. After I finished the first book, which ironically was about childbirth, it was a a humorous memoir about pregnancy called Exploiting My Baby. Um, I wrote, uh, based on a a successful blog I had been writing about pregnancy, Um, and that was 10 years ago. And and this is my second book, Making It Home, which is a memoir about grief and baseball. So it's just those two. And I'm thinking, like, I spent the last 18 uh, months writing this book, and honestly, if you're going to write a grief book, you have to cut right down to the bone or it's really not worth doing. So um, I remember when the last draft was finished thinking, I don't ever, 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 ever want to write anything ever again. <laughs> but I'm I'm so happy with how this turned out. I said what I had to say and I'm I'm really happy with it. Grief is a hard thing to talk about. And, um, you know, I was, I was uh, in there not ashamed to admit I was in therapy last week talking about um, all my anxiety about the book coming out because I can convince myself I'm very uninhibited when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. I convince myself that um, like, you know, no one's really going to see this. And I think (laughs) I'm able to say exactly what I want to say. Whereas in person, like right now, I'm super self-conscious. So I feel like as, as a writer you can write and revise and rewrite and when you're talking like I can't say to you oh, I stumbled over the word Twitter can I have a do-over you know I mean I guess I can but it would sound stupid so um, so I'm very I'm I, I feel much more comfortable in written form than, than speaking to you now um, but when I was talking to my therapist I was telling her how nervous I was like what if I can't do the book justice when I'm trying to promote it um, on appearances like this and and um, and uh, she said she, she was very reassuring and she said, I'd be fine. I don't know if she's right. But one of the things she mentioned was that, um, you know, it was very difficult to write this book because I think naturally when you're dealing with grief and loss, you do something which my therapist calls adaptive oscillation, which means you, uh, you know, she encourages people to go back to work if they're ready after a big loss because you need a break. So adaptive oscillation is you feel grief. And then you get relief and then you can feel it. And then you go to work. So um, baseball for my dad and I was the relief. It was normalcy. It was an activity we did four times a week, two games per kid of my kids that took us away from our grief. And, and, and writing this book, um, there is uh, some difficult and heavy content. My brother died of cancer at 47. It was a long illness, and anyone who's lost a friend or family member to a long illness understands. It's it's grueling. It's gruesome. It's painful. It's awful. There are things you never ever ever want to think about again. You know, I, I write about this in the book. Um, you know, b- buying diapers for my big brother when he was sick. It was just like getting an Amazon receipt. You know, I it just, it's just things like that, little details like that, that that is natural to run from. But when I was writing about it, I couldn't. So it was sort of like an unnatural oscillation process where I had to like sit and really think about those, those hard moments, those grief and loss moments because otherwise I couldn't describe them well. However, there's a lot of baseball scenes in the book. So <laughs> the book isn't, you know, yeah, you 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 might need your waterproof mascara, But it's not that heavy because uh, the making it home follows one single season of baseball and it covers all these games that my dad and I obsessively watched and got way too into. And those um, games are a framework for the story about family, grief and redemption. And it flashes back and forth. So you're not stuck in a heavy duty cancer scene for more than you can handle before you're back at a Little League game.
0: There you go and it, it's interesting the setup that you go through uh, you know the, what, what's that old uh, what's that old saying life springs eternal yeah I think it's hope springs eternal but yes but but life does it and one thing I went through when I when I uh, when I lost my dogs and then got my new puppies or uh, sometimes when I had other losses and then started to appreciate my father and his age um, it, it, there was almost like an awakening where I, I realized the value of the people around me. Do you say that maybe that's the cathartic journey you go on here?
1: I mean, there are some upsides to grief and loss. Mm -hmm. I think it makes you much more empathetic, you know, with, with, with people, with other people who are going through losses. um, It kind of cracks your heart open in a way. We, we had this experience, my dad and I watching little league where we became so involved with each and every kid. Mm-hmm. And just would take it would just it was just an emotional roller coaster um where where we were like, "This was our team. This was our family. Mm-hmm. He and I became a team. Our family became a team, and <laughs> our team became a family, which is actually a quote, that Cal um, Ripken Jr. said about my book, and I think it's so beautiful, and I'm so grateful. He said, "This is a story about a team that becomes a family, and a family that becomes a team," and that's really true. And I think going through grief or loss just opens up your heart a little; it softens you up a little. You're able to become a team and to become a. Family. I was able to accept my dad with all his imperfections and his problems, and you know, he has half his teeth, lives in a trailer park, he does a little day drinking. You know, he's he's not he's not perfect. But that's Fridays um,
0: around here. That's Fridays around here.
1: <laughs> that's, just, that's a typical Friday at the Chris Voss show. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I I think when you've had a loss, and you know I lost my mom four months to the day after my brother, mm. which um you know was also covered covered in this book. So I had what they call complicated grief or compound grief, yeah. um where I sort of wasn't able to come up from air for air from one loss, and I had I had another, and you know it. I don't know if anyone can accomplish this with their adult parent, but I was able to do it and I really wanted to write about it because I am so close to my dad now because I just was able to accept him. I had reps at spending time with him going to these Little League games and there were a lot of lessons I learned from 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 watching the kids on the diamond. You know, that's why the subtitle is Life Lessons from a Season of Little League. Uh there's a lot of there's a lot of failure baked into baseball. A lot. I mean if yeah. you strike out 6 out of 10 times you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. And that's mm-hmm. why I love baseball as a framework for talking about grief and family and redemption because I wasn't, you know, it's not like my dad and I got along every game and I write about that. There were fights and resentments <laughs> and you know things from the past and we'd yell at each other. We would get he would be in a mood if the team lost. Oh. Um and, and we would sometimes get in fights, but we, we, we had practice and we had reps and we sort of like learned to absorb failure and loss.
0: There you go. Now your, 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 your issue with your father though, is very comp, uh, complicated. We talked about that in the green room and uh, you, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Lay the foundation of the story of, uh, you know, kind of the history of you and your father and why this uh, kind of made this more important for you guys to have, would you call it a reconciling? uh at the at the, at the at the little league uh area Yes.
1: There. Yes, we had we had a reconciliation uh behind the first baseline in some chairs from Costco watching <laughs> a whole bunch of little league games and getting way too deep in our feelings where we would literally just leap out of our chairs and high five or we would go into like a depression if my son struck out or if our team lost. So I'll set the scene for you. Um, it's the seventies. Mm-hmm. Parenting is pretty different back then. My yeah. my parents were living in Los Angeles and um, my mom had left my dad to, to take a better job. And she just thought, well, you know, now I'll, I'll get custody of my kids. I got a better job. I'm making more. I'm going to take the kids to Chicago. And, um, and that's that. Well, my mom's lawyer said, no mother has ever lost custody of her children in the history of Los Angeles County for wanting to take a better job. Well, my mom was that person and I haven't been able to confirm that fact, but it was highly unusual at the time. And she lost custody. She didn't get joint custody. She got zero custody. She lost my brother and I, we were, I was three and my big brother was five. So my dad, I think maybe overplayed his hand. I don't think he intended to get full custody. At the time, he was a mechanic. He -hmm. worked six days a week. He didn't really have the wherewithal or bandwidth to be the parent to two little kids who were pretty messed up, you know, because our mom had left and come back. And, um, you know, if you've ever been around or had toddlers, uh, we Mm -hmm. were very close in age and we were kind of wild. And um, my dad just didn't know what to do. So uh, he returned me to my mom and kept my brother so wow yes I know that That's uh, a little it, bit of
0: rejection
1: that you're gonna <clears> feel I think I don't know did, did you feel that it's such a great question you know I, re- I you know how there are childhood memories and you don't know if you remember them or if you have a visual of them from people de- describing them to you um, when I went to live with my mom I was three and a half and my dad said, um, previous to my brother dying, he said that was the worst day of his life. And he remembers me in my mom's, uh, Toyota Corolla cause he's a mechanic. So all memories have the specific car he said he remembers me in my mom's car in the passenger seat with my ponytails driving away and a tear just, you know, f- falling down my cheek. Um, I, don't, I didn't experience it as, as rejection at that time. And I, I saw him once a month. I took the Greyhound to see him because I lived in San Francisco. My dad and my brother lived in LA. Um, but I, when my brother died, I had this visceral sense that I'd already grieved for him before. And wow. I think when we were separated as children, that that was really traumatic for me because I have two boys now. And when they were around that age, I, I thought, wow, they're so interconnected. And if one day you just split them, like they would never be the same on a cellular level. And so I think that's really what happened for me. And I, I never felt, I never interpreted it as my dad re- rejecting me. I, I loved my dad. I worshiped my dad. I loved being in his garage when he was fixing cars. I couldn't wait to go visit him. I admired him. I, really wanted my parents to get remarried and i really thought that would, that would happen <laughs> I, had ma- I had i had magical thinking it was only as, as an adult that i really came to resent him and think like how could you have divided siblings like that and wow. i was re- like just really really angry
0: yeah and probably as a mom you're you're trying to square that circle you're like i would never do that to my children
1: yeah you know having kids In some ways, it makes you understand things your parents did because you realize just how hard it is. But it also really, in in my case, uh, it made me really, really resent them. Like, I'm so nervous. Like, just the thought of one of my kids riding their bicycle without a helmet gives me, like, literally a stomachache. Like, just like, I'm so worried. But my parents uh, put me on the Greyhound bus back and forth when I was eight years old across the prison belt of central California and they sweat it <laughs> none.
0: We, we were both latchkey kids, man.
1: Yo, yeah. I mean, they you- were,
0: my, my, my mom would put a thing on her shirt saying, please kidnap him. Please, please. God, <laughs> take him, take him. Oh. She leave us in the car at Ralph's and, and put a sign on the window and uh, free kids.
1: Oh, was, I love that. <laughs> we had the we we must have had a similar childhood i was in the inner city in san francisco and uh was very much riding the city bus to school and home from ballet in the dark and i mean look we're gen x and it was a different time and parenting was different and so you have to see it through that lens and sometimes i i look back and i'm i i i wonder if you know we're parenting too hard now and i wish i could <clears throat> Maybe be a little more, laissez-faire fair with with my kids, but I have a lot of worry, probably because of the way I was raised, and I yeah. think like I don't I don't want my kids to be in unsafe and unsettling situations that that we were in a lot.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's what mamas do. Mamas are great at protecting uh, kids. You know, we like I say, we grew up in that latchkey Gen X generation. Uh, I mean, they actually I, I actually saw this the other day and posted on Facebook. They actually had a PSA. Uh, and Andy Warhol and, uh, who's the gal who sung, uh, uh, girls just want to have fun. Cindy Lauper was in it and a bunch of other stars. I think David Bowie was in it. You're like, what, what the hell? And, uh, uh, and, and I, I mean, do you really want Andy Warhol, uh, worrying about your kids? Like, I don't know, man, he's, there was a lot of drugs going on. Uh, and so she's like, uh, uh, they, they had a PSA that like, do you know where your kids are? It's 10 o'clock. Do you remember that? Oh, you had to remind parents to like find their kids at midnight.
1: <laughs> yes, okay, I used to be on Good Day New York, which is a morning show in New York, and their 10 p.m. news would always open with, "It's 10 p.m., do you know where your, kids, your are? kids are?" Can you imagine? First of all, you would get arrested now. If your kids were out at 10 p.m. and you didn't know where they were, um, but yeah, they, they back then David Bowie needed to tell you to 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 change your ways. <laughs> And know where them, you can find them kids. You've probably <laughs> seen these memes about Gen X. I hope you have where, you know, it says like, we survived on water from a garden hose.
0: Yeah, uh, you
1: know, we're the real F around and find out. <laughs> but it, but it's true. There was, um, as particularly with my parents who were real big hippies, um, and, you know, my mom was a working mom. My dad ran, ran the, we're in a car garage they they were busy and like, really, they weren't that interested in kids stuff like they weren't going to get on the floor with us and play with toys or take us to kid. My dad never took us to a kid movie. You know, when you have a divorced dad, you go to the movies on a Sunday. My dad would take me to see whatever he wanted to see. Mm-hmm. There wasn't going to be a cartoon like I oh. in my whole childhood. I never saw a Disney movie.
0: Hopefully it wasn't on those 70s movies that, uh, uh, you know, that famous uh, director made uh, uh, back in the day. Uh, you know, those those crazy 70 movies that were really good oh, cool movies and stuff like that. I yeah. did
1: see, my mom did take me to see Midnight Cowboy. Oh, wow. Okay. In which, I don't know if you remember, not appropriate for kids. Uh, This is it. This is it. This is in my book, Making It Home, uh, which does cover my very um, unusual 70s San Francisco childhood. Um, In that, I was taking the bus back and forth, as I mentioned, and I don't want to spoiler this movie if you haven't seen it. But um, the main one of the main characters, Razzo Rizzo, played by Dustin Hoffman, uh, dies on a on a Greyhound bus. So that was great for me.
0: You know, you mentioned earlier in the, uh, in the green room too, I think it was a line from Billy Crystal, one of Billy Crystal's movies. And, uh, give me that line again, because I think that really connects to why baseball is so important to, uh, you know, connecting with family and, and fathers.
1: She, I don't remember the quote which one
0: I think it was I think it was from something about I know that there was one I was trying to find online where Billy Crystal said you know my dad was a son of a bitch or something along those lines but the the only way we could ever talk and connect was going to baseball games and that was when we that's when we connected with a hot dog and a coke something, something along those lines and I couldn't figure out which movie it comes from uh, I thought it came from City Slickers um I maybe it did, which is one of my favorite movies, but, but, uh, I think you also mentioned the field of dreams maybe.
1: Yes. Maybe. Yes. Well, Billy Crystal is a renowned baseball fan. And mm-hmm. I think we were talking about the general, the generational nature of baseball. And that's why we love the field of dreams. Like mm-hmm. the, this idea that you could see your dad again, he would come from the cornfield and play catch with you. It's, mm-hmm. it's like something so deeply rooted in, you know, it's the American pastime. And, you know, my dad coached my brother. And my husband coached my sons. Um, I think a lot of people will relate to that. And I think that's why, um, you know, b- there's an eternal quality to baseball. And there is a famous quote um, that which I'm going to botch. But, but the, the nature of it is um, that baseball is, one of, is, is the only sport that, that doesn't have a clock. So it's oh. possible for a game of baseball to last forever. And in the quote, it says, and in that way, it, collect, it connects the living with the dead. And I have a lot of baseball oh. quotes in my book from Bull Durham to Babe Ruth to Yogi Berra. But that is one of my favorite quotes because there is this eternal quality, right? Because there's this mm-hmm. sense that this game could, I mean, it doesn't. But it could go on forever. You, you could have extra innings until the end of time. And there's just something so beautiful and, and eternal about that. And the thought of angels in the outfield and the thought of your dad coming, you know, coming out of the cornfield to, to play catch with you again. I don't think there's I don't think there's a, a little league dad who or, or mom uh, who played baseball or softball who doesn't have the feels the first time they see their kid in a uniform in t-ball with their little cleats out there, mm-hmm. like that's just gonna, it it, it it resonates on a generational level.
0: Hey, you're right. And, uh, you know, for a lot of us men as sons, uh, our fathers played baseball with us. They threw the ball with us. That was something we did, they did as a childhood. So it brings back all those childhood memories. So you mentioned that your father's was a little bit cantankerous. He's in his old age. I'm kind of getting there. I'm 55 now. I'm about as cantankerous as can possibly be. Um, tell us a little bit about that and and how you build this kind of rebuild the the sort of relationship with your father. And and you come from you know what we talked about earlier, where you're you're kind of uh, not quite happy with him. And and then uh, throughout this book, you describe how you reach a state of uh, betterment with him.
1: So my dad, as I mentioned, he's missing like half of his teeth. He only rides a bike. He doesn't have a car. He rides his bike everywhere. We live in Arizona. He rides his bike everywhere in summer. So he has like a giant hat that he puts under his bike helmet. And it's always like sweaty and covered with sunscreen (laughs) and greasy. And no matter how many hats I buy him, he only wants that hat. So like we live, you know, in like a nice neighborhood, you know, it's, you know, a middle class neighborhood. And then my dad shows up with half his teeth sweaty greasy hat right for a while he'd had the spandex bike shorts and you know he's pushing 80 up a hill and i don't want to see the outline of old man balls and i especially don't want my dad to be those balls that people see so he would also then take his bike and instead of a bike cover he had a lime green fitted sheet because he's a very thrifty man and he would take his bike and throw a lime green sheet over it and it would be in the outfield and then you know, up walks my dad, who does do a little day drinking. Oh, um, there you go. And uh, especially if, if like it's a stressful game that in the in the team's losing. So you know, I wanted my dad to be like rolling up in a in in, in, in a nice sensible Volvo with like cl- <laughs> oh my gosh, I mean, all of his clothes are from Walmart, and he only will buy like certain Dickies, you know, shorts like an eleven dollar brand. And, um, I told you about the hat and then he has like a black shirt, but there's always like lint. And then because he doesn't have all his teeth, Chris, the chewing's a problem. Have you ever seen a man with half his teeth try to chew a Snyder's hard pretzel?
0: I mean, I never would look, but I mean, he is your dad. So you're,
1: (laughs) I mean, the chewing, the spitting, the, the spandex, the hat, the teeth. And then on top of all that, after my brother died, He developed these eye twitches, right? Like I don't know if it was a stress thing. Like so, they like really like they're called blepharospasms, and he would spasm, and they would go like down into sometimes in his jaw. So if you're not already looking at him because there's a lime green sheet on his bike and he's got the spandex and the and the giant sweaty hat, now he's twitching, like his eyes are blinking, and he's just calling a lot of attention to himself. But I went from being embarrassed by my dad uh, the beginning of the season to. I know this sounds cheesy but to my dad's my hero and my best friend and a lot of that had to do with baseball because when we were on the sidelines together rooting for this team in an unnaturally serious and intense way i remember after the first practice i called him that night and we had a 45 minute conversation my dad and i and as a lot of sports fans know you can have an extremely emotional conversation where real feelings and thoughts are being exchanged, but you're ostensibly just talking about uh, a team, whether it's Uh the Yankees, the Phoenix Suns, you know, the 49ers or a little league team. My dad and I talked for 45 minutes because it was the first time we'd seen our team, the purple pinstripes. And we were talking about lineups and who should play shortstop and who's got the big bat and who's throwing, you know, who's throwing heat. And that was the beginning. And after every game, we texted back and forth or we talked about, you know, breaking down, like who should have made a double play and didn't? Who's the best catcher on the team? Why why didn't coach put so-and-so in center field? You know, who's who should be at second base? Let's flip this lineup. You know, we got into it. And in that way, we were having a real conversation and a real exchange of feelings. But the way, you know, at the beginning of the book, I thought, I started a file on my computer, Chris, and it was called Little League Grief Group because I started well, thinking that this is my dad and my grief group, and that was what I called it, and, I, and, it, and it became the book, which is now making it home. Um, but I, I realized that at the beginning, I thought it was going to be a book about me and how and how <laughs> I, I I had I had learned to tolerate these feelings of grief by watching baseball, and then in, in, in midway through the book, I thought. Oh, it's a hero's journey but the hero is my dad because wow. my dad experienced a type of grief and loss that was much different than than mine because he lost a child yeah and to see him walk through that he never shut the door on it he was living with it and um you know i i write about this um his trailer has a shed a little shed next to it. I don't know if you've been to any trailer parks recently, but they got the little, <laughs> they got the three stairs that the, they're, they're, they're mobile. You roll up the stairs to the door and then there's an AstroTurf rug. And then you there's know. a little shed where you put your stuff. And um, my dad had all my brother's, you know, old trophies and pictures of my brother in oh, the what? shed. And the door didn't close. And my dad's very handy. He was a mechanic. And I knew that he could have fixed the door. So the way that my dad, my dad didn't have any pictures of my brother inside of his trailer. And I I thought, like, this is my dad. He doesn't throw away the pictures. He doesn't shut the door on the pictures. He can't have them right in his face because it's too hard. But but he's not shutting, you know, he's not shoving them away. And um, I learned how to do grief from my dad
0: that is awesome i mean the beautiful part about your book is you know i i I remember sharing grief when my first dog died years ago and i and i remember spending a half an hour to press the button and i'm like this is too much all about me this is selfish no one's gonna care and uh i i pressed the button and sent it and passed out from all the vodka i had been drinking and uh the next morning and and ongoing through a couple of my dogs, uh, seeing me share what I did, the grief, the pain, the, the catharticism of going through it all and stuff helps so many other people. And so people are going to be able to read your book. They're going to see the catharsis uh, that you went through and they're probably going to reflect like I had people writing me privately going, I, I, I cried when you wrote what was going through with your, with your grief because uh, I realized that I hadn't gotten closure on some things with my father or my animals or whatever. I, I realized that I still need to flesh it out. And so what's great about books like yours is people can see that and use that as a blueprint to go, wow, I need to work on some things about me and maybe appreciate our fathers and mothers a little bit more.
1: Well, that was beautiful. And I'm sorry for, for your losses and, uh, and I'm glad you, you shared about it. Um, <clears throat> there is a famous quote in my book, That um, is said by one of the big grief experts who worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And his name is David Kessler. And he said, grief needs a witness. Mm -hmm. So when you wrote about your dog uh, in your vodka-induced haze, (laughs) that's what you were. And when when it resonated for people, you were getting your grief witnessed. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wrote this book. Because I hope that when people read it, they'll say, yeah or they'll not or they'll say yes that's what it felt like for me too that's what it felt like because if i can describe exactly how it was for me um in in, in my specific experience i hope that that resonates because there is there's not one of us who is not going to be touched by loss and grief maybe it hasn't happened yet but we're not getting off this rock without losing uh someone or something that we love and mm-hmm. um so it's it's a it's a human experience that that we're all going to have to go through and um and, and and tolerate and absorb and that's why baseball made such a great framework for for talking about it because there's 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 losing, you know, there's losing an inning, losing a game. Uh there's failure. It's, it's so much failure. It's hard, it's painful. When you see I was just at a little league game last night cuz my younger one's still playing and when you in the playoffs, it's intense, Chris. And when you see a 10-year-old strike out in a in a big spot in a high leverage moment and the the walk from the plate back to the dugout where they're trying not to cry the, the 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 pain of the failure of the loss is so visceral it's so real and your adult brain understands like this is okay this is not life or death but something in my heart is just like i when a kid's up there on two strikes on mm-hmm. my team on my team forget the other team okay I'm I need to grind them down. I'm very competitive. But if it's one of my babies, not literally my babies, but someone on my team. I'm not even religious, but when I'm on two strikes and there's two outs, I will pray to Jesus, Moses, Elvis and the babe for that kid to get a hit. I want it so badly. And then part of me understands though that failure is inevitable, that it's necessary to grow, that we have to deal with it, that we have to absorb it. I I think also um You know, I write about getting hit by a pitch, and I don't know if you play little league, um, but every kid, you get. uh, Let me let me just tell you that you're going to get hit by a pitch. You will get hit by a wild pitch, and that's how I feel about grief. It is going to happen to you, and all you have to do uh, is like feel it, tolerate it, absorb it, get curious about how it feels. and, and move, move through it because in baseball, you know, a lot of kids do a thing called stepping in the bucket. It's an mm-hmm. expression that any baseball player, little leaguer knows because there's a hard object hurling at you, right? And it's coming fast. And a lot of 10-year-old pitchers, which is the age I write about in my book, 9 and 10s, they're wild. They're Charlie Sheen in major league. <laughs> You they can't, they can't get anywhere near the dome half the time, right? So a hard object is coming at you in an unpredictable way. You're going to step in the bucket. You're going to step away because you're going to, it's so natural for us to flinch. And mm-hmm. I, when I sat through this season, um, that's covered in making it home, I related to every kid that stepped in the bucket because when something <laughs> painful is going to happen to me, I just, I want, I, I want to get away from it because it hurts too bad and it hurts too much. And that's how I felt when my brother died, you know, every night when I was going to sleep, I would just like, I would think to myself, like, is this real? Did this really happen? Is my big brother dead? Is he really dead? Is he really dead? And, and, and it was hard and it hurt. And um, when, when I saw there's one kid in particular, there's a character in my book who's a real, real kid. I did change his name. He stepped in the bucket for an entire season. He couldn't stay. He couldn't stay inside against a pitch because he was too scared of getting hit. But here's the thing. If you don't stay inside, you're never hitting the ball square. Mm. So if you want to hit a home run, and if you want to hear that sweet sound of that ball, you know, if you're barreling up the ball with the bat, you have to risk getting hit. And then you get hit, it hurts, you get to first, and, and you move on.
0: There you go. I mean, that's such a great analogy for, like you said, dealing with the trials and tri- and triumphs and things that are going to be thrown at us in life. You know, we don't sometimes have a choice. It's, but you've got to, you know, it's how you process it and how you deal with it.
1: Yeah. And I always think, would you rather not play? You know, yeah. would you, would you, yeah, I, I, you know, it hurts. I don't want to get hit. I don't <laughs> want my kids to get hit. Um, you know, the the other thing about baseball that, you know, about little league is, that it's kind of a microcosm for a lot of things about parenting because you can't control the outcome. Um, at the during this season, my son's pitching was so wild. Okay, he's a big lefty. He plays now. He's thirteen, and he's really—if um, I can brag—you know, he's 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 got excellent command now. But at that time, when he was nine, mm-hmm. he had his arm was he had velo. I mean, he threw hard. But you didn't know what you were gonna get. Some games he was throwing <laughs> strikes. The next game, it was like into the dirt. It was sailing over the catcher's head, and um, uh, I had what what's called a PMS pitcher's mom syndrome, where I just was. You just oh, it's so terrifying. But because the, the thing is, your kid's all alone up there on the mound, and there mm-hmm. is nothing that you can do. You can pray and you can wish and you can clap and you can cheer and you can encourage, but you can't get up there and throw strikes for your kid. And I remember a couple of innings where, um, where, where, where my son was struggling and it was so painful. And and my dad sitting, you know, sitting next to each other in our, in our Costco chairs. And he said about pitching, but I knew that it was also about parenting. You cannot protect your kids from life. Yeah. And, you know, he's somebody who couldn't save his kid from dying. And mm-hmm. it put in perspective that, you know, I couldn't save my kid from a real bad outing on the mound. Although, Chris, a fun fact about Little League I learned um, through through my son that season when, because he was so wild. He, um, Okay. Uh, the Little League of America, to protect our children, has a rule that if a pitcher hits three kids with a pitch in one inning... That pitcher has to be pulled, and nobody has ever heard of that rule until my son did it. And the ump said, uh, "I'm sorry, but that kid's that kid's got to be pulled. He's hit three batters in one inning." So wow. look, he turned out to he turned out to be a really good pitcher. So, um, you know, it's just
0: <laughs> you know the. uh Uh, I, I, I've been, I don't have any kids of my own, but I've been to, uh, little league games and I, I, I remember going as a kid to mine. I don't think my parents showed up, but I was a latchkey kid. So that makes sense. Uh, but, uh, I've been to the little league games and I, I've had usually whoever I was dating and then the divorced father, uh, somewhere in the crowd and you know, we're all doing (laughs) what you guys do at little league games, you know, yelling and screaming cheering for the kid and yelling at the other team. And I remember one time our the, the pseudo twelve pseudo uh, uh, stepson of mine, um, he comes up to us and I think he was like ten or twelve and he goes he goes, uh, hey guys, why don't you just calm down? It's just a game, man. Like it's you're making a big deal. Like he was he had better perspective than we threw all the of kid. Us. The yeah, kid. The kid did, yeah. It's, oh yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you
1: I just mean i
0: back a little bit, mom and dad. You
1: so you've been on the sidelines in your in oh, your pseudo oh, I've pseudo seen the stepdad violence. role. Yeah, I've seen uh, the violence. I, yeah. I, you know, I think another very interesting thing about youth sports and as it pertains to the the, the psychology of parenting and sort of like how you have to learn to let go, um, I think there's, you know, obviously some ego attachment when your kid is very good at something. If mm-hmm. that thing is chess or an instrument, it's no different. But I don't know, in, in athletics, I've seen this a lot where, and it happened with my dad. My dad was a mediocre athlete. He never made a team. And my brother was an all-star and he was, he was excellent. He was very, very good. And uh, I think my dad, you, you get swept up in it. Like I I made this person and this person's great. And I wasn't great. And he's going to be great during the course of the season and making it home. I remember being in the parking lot and my dad, who didn't talk about my, my brother very much. He said, um, he said, we called my, my brother's name was Morgan, but we called him Muggsy. And the car was stopped, and my dad wasn't getting out. And he said, T, I, re- I really thought Muggsy was going to make it to the bigs. I really oh. thought he was going to make it. Wow. And then I knew that he meant that he thought that my brother could, could, could play professionally. And then he took a beat, and he said, somebody has to make it to the show. Why not him? Why not Muggsy? And I, I, I understood so deeply then that my dad had grieved when my brother stopped playing. Because he was so, um, he was so identified with my brother being an all-star and being good because he'd he'd never had that experience, um, Mm. you know, as a kid himself. And um, my brother at 13, he just stopped being able to hit. He got what they call the yips. And we don't know why. Uh, Mm. You know, maybe his eyesight changed. You know, nobody really knows. But it was like the death of this dream for my dad. And I think he had a sort of a grief then. And I know... For me, I felt that on the sidelines because, um, you know, my, 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 you know, my, my kid in this, I have have two boys and they're, they're both all-stars and you want to think that you're mature and that it's just kids playing and you want to, you know, but there's a part of you that just can't help to feel like it's you throwing strikes or hitting home runs. Like you, like you're you're identified with this excellence and and it 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 like fills you up with this with this joy um and then when things go badly you feel so defeated because not only do you want your kid to be happy you know and succeed but um there's there's something like you know when 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 um you know my kid pitched last night he came into clothes he threw. Um, he almost had what they call an immaculate inning, which is nine strikes. <laughs> but oh, he really? threw ten pitches. He had one ball. But part of me, though I did nothing, Chris, mm-hmm. is like, I'm the mother of dragons. I made. Him. I made him. I made him. That's uh, mine. That's my baby. And I think that's why you see parents act a fool on the sidelines because we're involved in it as much as you try not to be. You know, you, you identify with, with, with your kid and you, you think, uh, I, I remember this, this, um, this movie called searching for Bobby Fisher about a chess prodigy. Mm-hmm. And there's this great scene where the dad, um, oh, who was that actor, um, uh, such a good scene. He, he goes to Laura Linney plays the kid's teacher and he's like, you know, she says, well, maybe you're spending too much time on this chess thing. And he goes, this chess thing. You've never been at as good as anything in your life as my kid is at this chess thing, right? And I've always related to that scene because that's what happens if you're lucky enough to have a kid who's, you know, might have uh, a, a, a knack for something or be a little bit of a prodigy. It becomes about you too.
0: Yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting too. My the things that shape me as a uh, as a as a man as a boy. Was my relationship with both of my alpha uh, grandfathers, and I was probably the last of Generation Generation X to have access to that, um, and and those are the most valuable times that I remember now in my space. Uh, do you talk about in the book about uh, maybe the impact on your sons, uh, you know, and and seeing their mother and their and their grandfather? together, uh, reconciling, uh, dealing with this and, and just being a part of being a family and togetherness that a lot of families don't really have anymore. They're kind of stuck looking at their iPhones and iPads.
1: Uh, My cheeks hurt from smiling. I'm so happy (laughs) to hear that you are close with your grandparents and that we get to talk about this because I always forget (laughs) to talk about this. Um, Yeah. So uh, uh in baseball, there's always a chance for redemption, right? Because as we talked about, a game could go on forever. And I think that's true in a family. So my dad said, I wasn't a good dad, but I'm a great grandfather. And I think a lot of... Grandparents can relate to that redemption, right? Yeah. It's possible in baseball. You can be down to your last out and still win a, win a game. You know, you can be on two strikes and hit a home run. My dad found redemption as a grandfather, and you know, you're you're absolutely right. We we aren't really like living the way we used to, like in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when Charlie's <laughs> grandpa was like sleeping in the living room. Yeah, you no, know? like I I was really close to my grandpa too, and my grandparent, my dad, you know can ride his bike to my house. My dad has never missed a baseball game of one of my kids. Wow. Never. At one time, he had some kind of infection, he was in the hospital and he told the nurse like, "I'm getting out of here cuz my my kid has a game." He took off the bracelet and he said, <laughs> "See ya." So my so so you know, he's around a lot and he's he's part of my kids' lives and just seeing that relationship heals a lot of uh of wounds from, from my own childhood where my dad wasn't around a lot. Uh, He's, he's there and I'm glad that you got the chance to, to be close to, to your, both your grandparents.
0: And I think it'll make a difference to your sons in the future. They'll remember it that you know it, it really will it's weird you know it, sometimes it's men or as, i think it's men and women uh correct me if i'm wrong but i think sometimes you know we we go through that youth and we go through teenagedom, we're trying to find our ego and we're pretty selfish at that point and and all about us and and sadly we lose a lot of access to our parent grandparents you know i i see my mother going through with her grandkids um where she's uh you know they're kind of at that moment where they're they're focused on their lives you know they're trying to build and figure out this whole stupid world. And she's like, you know, I feel like I've lost them. I'm like, they'll come back. They'll come back. They're going to, they, They. there's a moment where they start to, they get things down and they, and they go, Hey, what's my history? Who am I? What am I about? And maybe women do it more when they have a family and, you know, uh, maybe fathers do too. You know, they have to start explaining, you know, who are we to their kids. But I think this is beautiful, what you put in the story and everything else uh, and, and a moving thing. And, and, and it can help so many people in so many different ways. And maybe we all need to start spending each other time with our, our loved ones at baseball and <laughs> hey,
1: listen it, it 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 what 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 it might be something different for you it was baseball for us mm-hmm. it was just you know the routine of going to game after game the reps and the practice and mm-hmm. you know for me because i'd already lost a parent and i'd already lost my brother and he was all i had left mm-hmm. from, from my from my nuclear family of origin i just had to practice like not snapping at him and not yelling at him over every little thing and not being annoyed because he couldn't chew the pretzel and because he put the green sheet over the bike. But like just going, this is my dad and I'm proud of him. And, you know, when I was on the sidelines for that season, like I said, at first I, I, I was like embarrassed and I wished for like a country club dad with like a normal car and a windbreaker. And by the end, I realized I've only seen one grandparent that's here every game. And I would never wow. ever I would never ever <laughs> trade him, you know, rolling up in a Range Rover in a suit for him being here every single game. And by the way, always a half an hour early, like old people do. Really?
0: Wow. Always. There you go. Uh, so this is a beautiful story. Uh, who would play your grandfather or your your son's grandfather? Who would play I, your oh. father in uh, in a movie? I, I'm, I'm thinking of led. the Spandex. I want to see the Spandex. Uh, scene. <laughs> I can just see this with a green uh, sheet and the bicycle. I want to see this in the movie.
1: I'm so glad you asked this. I have three <laughs> ideas. And one of them is, I think, very, very doable and solid. So when I was writing the proposal for this, I thought it was, I thought it was a solid idea. Like I told you, I had a file in my computer called Little League Grief Group. Mm-hmm. And I thought, like, what if I just write about this season about grief and about baseball and about family? And I just felt like... I, I think I can say what I want to say. I think I can, I can really talk about grief in a sort of lighthearted way because, because baseball. And I, I, I ran up by my agent and he said, this proposal is really good. But if you write me a scene, one, if you write me a chapter, mm-hmm. write the Oscar scene, I can sell this book. If you write me the scene that wins the, a- the actor, the Oscar that's playing this. And if I'm describing it, you know what I mean, right? It's yeah. the scene. It's yeah. the scene, right? Yeah. So, I went to a hotel by myself for 24 hours so I could get away from my kids and and think. And I thought and I thought and I cried and I walked around the block and I stressed and I cried. And then and then I got it and then I got it. I knew I knew the scene. I knew the scene that if the actor played the scene, they would win the Oscar. And I'm going to tell you the actor that I think should do it in a second. But the scene um, once in a baseball game, my dad said. Sometimes I scream your brother's name when I, when I, when I ride home on my bike, I scream, I scream his name. And I was like, he didn't really use, my dad, you know, doesn't really offer up that kind of emotional information. We're like, we're going to talk about loss. It's baseball only. Right. So I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? You scream his name? I don't know. I'm not bothering anybody. You know, I'm not bothering anybody. It's late and it's dark and no one hears me. Hmm. And then I said, well, do you. Like, is that it? Do you just like scream his name or just, do, you, do you say anything else? And, and then I just looked at his face and I knew it was too much and he didn't want to talk about it anymore. So I never brought it up. But that night I went to sleep and I, I just thought about my dad. And that's the scene I wrote. I wrote an old man who's lost his son to cancer. And he's leaving a baseball game where he's seen his grandson who reminds him of his son. And they're both lefties. And he's riding in the dark. And my dad's, you know, bald. And, um, and he's screaming into the night because this is the only way he can like r- release his grief. And he's just, he's screaming his dead son's name into the night on the bike path through Arizona. And so um, I wrote that scene and interwoven with, you know, baseball and my dad and I talking about baseball and the lineup and all that stuff and the nitty gritty. And then my dad screaming, screaming out, you know, and, 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 and where does the sound of his voice go and a uh, father's grief. Um, and the, then, you know, that, that, the book did turn out to sell, thankfully, and that is still my favorite scene that I that I wrote. It's just a beautiful scene. And mm-hmm. okay, now just bear with me because I know that was a very, very long preamble. But bear with me because this, this actor is not known for drama, but oh. there's a lot of comedy in my book. Okay. He shaves his head, and this man's name is Henry Winkler.
0: Oh, that's a great father figure right there.
1: Do you yeah. not think he could win an Oscar?
0: Oh, dude, he could. I mean, mean, America loves him. That is his role right there.
1: Look, Billy Crystal could play it, and here's like, here's another one. I don't know how easy it's going to be to get Harrison Ford, but he's the right (laughs) age.
0: (laughs) There you go. There you go. I, 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 how does Harrison Ford look in spandex? I don't know. Why am I thinking? We'll find out. I don't know. Whatever. We should.
1: We should all find out. Well, he's on a show called Shrinking, so hopefully that doesn't reflect how he'd look.
0: Oh. You know, it's, uh, I, I just think the image that you painted of your father is, is just funny and unique and, and it, it, it's character. I mean, as men, we have some weird quirky character, and but it's who we are. And I'm Oh, I you...
1: didn't, I didn't mean Chris, sorry to interrupt you, but I left out that, um, he has a lot of ear hair and nose hair.
0: That's being old. Yeah. I'm kind of getting there.
1: <laughs> well, you know, like you got to trim it. And I, I said, dad. I, please, I took him to a barber, like the old fashioned barber with the red pole and everything in Scottsdale oh. here where we live. And they did a beautiful job and he looked so great. And I was like, dad, just, just do this every couple months. I'll pay for it. Just please. Just, I don't want you showing up at little league games with all your ear hair and nose hair. And he just like, he's so thrifty. He doesn't even like spending my money. Wow. Yeah. So he refused. But by the end of the season, I just thought like, look, this is my dad. Those are his balls. That's his ear hair. That's his nose hair. That's his sweaty hat. Like, he's here. He's here at every game. That's the dad I get. That's it. Oh. I love him. I accept him. And, like, this is who he is. He does not have all his teeth, and he does not have all his marbles. But that's what I get.
0: There you go. I. It, that's the one thing I remember of my grandfather that's endearing to me. His nose hair and his ear hair. And we used to tease <laughs> him about it. And he's like, you wait you wait. And I'm 55 and God damn it. He was right. Uh, the curse continues, but thank you very much for being on the show. This has been beautiful and uh, wonderful to share. And I think it's a story that everyone's going to fall in love with.
1: Thank you so very much for having me. It was really a pleasure.
0: There you go. Uh, and give me your com so people can find you on the interwebs Teresa
1: at Teresa Strasser, T E R E S A S T R A S S E R.
0: There you go. Uh, thanks, so my it's for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com for chess Chris Voss, uh, linkedin.com for slash Chris Voss, youtube.com for chess Chris Foss. Order it up wherever fine books are sold. You can pre-order it now so you can be the first on your block or your book club to say you read it. Making it home. Life Lessons from a Season of Little League. June 6, 2023, it comes out. Teresa Strasser has been on the show with us as well. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time. And that's